I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. This is Eric Arneson from My Alchemical Bromance, and you are Vayu Tiger? Is that how you say it? Yeah, 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 Vayu Tiger, yeah. You nailed it. A lot of people say Vayu, but it's like, it's, it's a Sanskrit. The first part is Sanskrit, so it's Vayu. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, what does it mean? What does Vayu mean? Uh, it is one of the top vas in, in, in India, one out of five. It's, uh-huh. like the, it's like the elements out there. And Vayu is means wind or air. Oh, like um, prana. Well, prana, I guess, means breath, huh? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You have Tejas, Vayu, um, Agni, mm-hmm. you know, Agatha, and, and Akasa. Mm-hmm. Are just a few of the various names of the elements. I have not done very much study of any sort of... Um... Uh, Indian magic stuff at all, actually. I don't, I don't know very much about that stuff. Um, but let's talk about your uh, automatic writing. What, what, what was that? How did you automatic write? Like, what was it? Oh, it was, it was kind of a funny story. Yeah. I was, I was, um, it was probably in September. Mm-hmm. The window was open. wasn't too hot. wasn't too cold. And um, I don't know. I, I was just getting ready, ready to work on some magical stuff, you know. Like mm-hmm. I would always pump around ideas, magical theories in my mind. I, you know, I'll, I'll just write some things out, you know, way back in the day, just to see what would come, just to see what would come out. Yeah. And then I, I don't know what happened. It's like the, just out of nowhere, there was this heaviness, and um, my hand just started to move. Mm-hmm. And it's like there was that lack of control, and uh, I, I just wrote, wrote wrote this book in four days. And <laughs> how, uh, how many words did it end up being? Like how much writing came out of you? Uh, so far, I think my book here has close to twelve thousand, eleven thousand words. That's pretty good. That's uh, that's what that's probably like twenty, thirty, forty pages. Yeah, yeah, it's it's even well beyond that. Um, with everything else included, I guess with the book that I'm working on, um, it, there could be up to fourteen thousand. So it's a hundred something pages. Wow. And yeah. what do you? What's the topic? Like, what do you, do you automatic write about? Were you? Yeah, that's. Um, oh, that's a good question. There were there's actually four separate parts of the book. Mm-hmm. The latter one wasn't included in the previous editions. The last one be because I have this bad habit because I have about 15 years of notes. Yeah. So sometimes I'll rummage through my notes like, oh, OK, what's this? OK, I remember writing this, blah, 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 blah. You catch my drift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have this reflection process. So I'll, I'll, I'll dive at the beginning. The first book was actually an invocation of my angel, my holy guardian angel. Mm-hmm. And. Then the second day was Phoebus Apollo. The third day was Aphrodite. The fourth day was Pallas Athene. And then the last day, I, I, I don't know what that was. I think it was Phoebus. But uh, on the fifth day, at least on the last day, I never really included that because I didn't realize, I, I, I didn't think it was a part of the manuscript until I read it here recently. I'm like, 
oh, that's what that is. Hmm. I get it. But it's more of sort of a, um, sort of like a self-initiatory thing that the energy get, gave you, you know, from yeah. it, which was a little, which was a little different. So I didn't realize like in my previous editions, it sounds really harsh on the surface, but like most alchemical texts, texts, you know, you can, they read really harsh in a lot of ways, very literal in a lot of ways. But once you know that they're alchemical texts, especially from, I would say, from the Dark Ages and antiquity, we realize that that some of these people were alchemists. And they, for example, there was a text, uh, I didn't know about it till my friend pointed it out, but it was a text regarding Apollo or the sun mm -hmm. and how, how it reads eerily similar to what I wrote. And I had no clue about this text at all. And it was written in the Renaissance or the, or the Dark Ages. And um, at first, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't take it literal, but, but as a more of a philosophical text, um, I caught some Neoplatonism in it before I was aware of it. Yeah. We're I also caught some, some Pythagoreanism in it. Uh huh. So there's a, there's a lot in there. Were you aware of what you what you were writing while you were writing it, or was it sort of? I mean, were you like a a a passenger watching the words go out, or was it sort of like you you came out of the automatic writing state and you were like, oh, geez, I just wrote twenty pages of stuff. I I was more of of a passenger, and uh -huh. and I and it's like my hand was moving like crazy i couldn't stop my friend knew something was going on he didn't know what was going on mm -hmm. was he watching you know yeah uh -huh. he was like what the hell <laughs> and yeah he was he was there for all four days but um i got it finished now being young and dumb and saying oh i can be a published author i rushed a text mm -hmm. the first time didn't come out as good second time was a little bit better but this third time i think it's going to be the final edition of it I'm taking my time with it. I'm older, wiser, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, trying trying to do things right the, this time around, so I don't have to come back to it ever again. Yeah, that's you know? that's interesting. I um, that kind of uh, that kind of like freedom or or acceptance mode that you get into with that sort of thing is, uh, I don't think that a lot of people are capable of doing it. You know, the, 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 re the receptive mode, I suppose, is what you would call it. Or I don't know what you call it. Yeah, whatever the case is, I, I agree with you. And the thing is, um, at the time, I was unaware of a lot of this stuff that, that, that was in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, such as the Pythagoreanism. If you would have told me 10 years ago that that the, these these some of these were Pythagorean studies, I'd be like, ah, whatever. What the hell's that? You huh. know? It's fascinating. And does it hold up pretty well to scrutiny? Do you feel like uh, do you feel like the words that were used or the, the phrasing and stuff, do you feel like it was yours that, that you're... No. Yeah. Hmm. No, it, 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 it's way more poetic than, than what I normally write with. I'm a straightforward writer. That's pretty fascinating. <laughs> and you said there are there are editions already out there. Yeah, but I took those down for so for this new one because mm -hmm. I'd rather have people get the best one. Well, you know, now I'm super curious. That's that's pretty cool. I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it when it's ready. 
Oh yeah. Like I said, I, I just have to do a few more things to it and it's good to go. Just one more chapter. Yeah. And cool. Then, yeah. So that's uh, one of my projects going on. Um, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your podcast. What is it? Shadows in the dark. Yeah. Shadows in the dark. And it's a, um, uh, it's live. Run right? this, yeah. We go live. We run this with two other, I run this with two other hosts. Um, very good friends of mine, uh, Sam shadow and Ignis, Ignis Cobra. Mm-hmm. And we, um, get together. We bring on other guests, much, much like you have me on. We discuss different things such as all the way from Satanism, the paranormal, to magic. Uh, we're just all over the place. So, like I said, it's one. I would say Ignis is more of the uh, the paranormal guy. That's mm-hmm. just his thing. And then there's Sam. Um, I consider him a very well-rounded magician, but he did come from the left-hand path and. Uh, he's into into a lot of the Typhonian stuff, uh-huh. and he, one of his main uh, deities is, is set. Yeah. So he comes from a, different, from a different perspective, and I myself come from more of a uh, traditional ceremonial magician, who who's adapted a lot of these um, views and texts from antiquity, such as the Greek magical papyri the Orphic hymns and a lot of these other texts uh, to get to the roots of Western civilization. And so we come from all three of us come from different perspectives towards something. That's interesting. I, yeah. I haven't, uh, I've watched a couple of episodes. Uh, I'm not, I personally, I, I, uh, I'm a really, really bad podcast listener. Like it's, it's hard for me to make it all the way through episodes. It's hard for me to find places in my life where I, don't have stuff going on and i just have time to listen <laughs> which i guess is kind of crappy but um so i haven't i haven't actually explored your podcast a whole lot i've looked at the titles and i've watched a little bit of a few of them and stuff and it's, it's pretty interesting it's it's uh it's different watching it as a video you know because the, the, yeah yeah do you feel like the video aspect of the fact that your guests are being recorded changes the way that they respond to you Mm, maybe in the beginning that could be an issue for them, uh-huh. you know, but, but once we actually get people on and we start talking, you know, it, it starts to warm up a little bit. So we'll actually get a guest on like 15, 20 minutes prior, mm-hmm. you know, just talk to them, know what they're about. That way we can warm up the conversation early. And that way, once they do come on, they're comfortable. And that way, when it comes to knowing that it's live, it's not a big issue. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, for example, one of our guests, Billy Brujo, mm-hmm. um, you know, very funny guy, a wonderful magician. He normally ha- has a tendency to tell a lot of jokes. He has perfect sarcasm. Uh-huh. So we sort of expected a funny part of Billy Brujo. Mm-hmm. But he came off as a teacher, as a very serious teacher, because he warmed up and all of that, I think. And so, some, so you might catch a persona from a guest that you're not necessarily used to. Right, right. You know, in their um, regular content that they make. Hmm. 
And um, and how do you find them? I noticed that some of your guests are people who have like uh, YouTube channels on the occult or, or things like that. But how do you normally? Where do you look? Honestly, I've known I've known a lot of these people for years. Oh, so sort of part of the same uh, online occult community, or are they local or? Uh, mainly online, some of them, but mm-hmm. some of them we we'll, we reach out by via email. I mean, I, I can't I can't get too much out, but Tallyson McKnight, um, very good friend of mine, been uh-huh. a friend of mine since uh, 2014, 2013, actually. That's when we started my second podcast ever, um, Magic Occult Radio. Uh-huh. And um, uh, very, very awesome guy. Um, like I said, I've just known a lot of these people for years, hmm. you know, so... A lot of times, it I don't have a problem with, with you know, shooting off an email or messaging. Hey, want to come on our podcast? Now, um, there's some there's some guests I don't have any clue about, like Billy Brujo. Uh-huh. He was recommended 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 by Sam, so we got Sam in there, and um, we both sort of emailed Billy at the same time, <laughs> so. Um, we, he, he got on, and uh, that's how we sort of uh, get, got guests on. We just sort of reach out. If there's somebody's content that we like, mm-hmm. you know, big or small, we'll just say, hey, you know, how would you like an extra platform to come on and talk about some specific things? Uh, we'll see what a guest does not want to talk about because we know that, um, you know, there, there are some sensitive topics for some people oh, that sure. are in their past or – what have you that they don't want to talk about or maybe something that they've reiterated over and over. They're tired, tired of reiterating. So first we have to figure out what not to talk about in order to figure out what to talk about. Then we warm up 15 or 20 minutes before. So that's, that's a normal process we go through. I think the warm up sounds like a good idea. I've, we, we don't do that on our podcast and uh, I don't know if it makes people more awkward or less awkward or what, but eh, you know, uh, most occultists are kind of awkward to begin with. Well, well, it helps though because I find during the warm-ups, mm-hmm. you, you actually get in touch with who the person is um, right. on on a more mundane level. Actually, I've I've made a lot of good friends, you know, just just out of the warm-ups, mm-hmm. and then then it's kind of funny. There's this after effect after the show is over. We'll be on Skype or be on uh, mainly be on Skype. And we'll, we'll talk for an extra hour or two. I'm not kidding. And then um, we, we, we have a – we made a lot of friends by that method, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. So – Well, cool. And so far, every guest uh, so far, they've always said that they've wanted to come back and all of that. So, um, so yeah, it's just one of those things that, that just sort of happens. So when it comes to occult stuff, how long have you been a practitioner? How long have you been in, uh, interested in this stuff? Oh, God. It's, I've been in this for a little bit over half my life. Yeah. I'm 30 now, but I've been in, been in this for 16 years. Wow. Yeah. I started ceremonial magic eight years ago. Uh-huh. And what did you, um, how did you originally learn? What did you start off with? Um, my, like most occultists, I learned from Crowley. Oh, really? Had to be, yeah. Um, he was sort of, 
this is, but when I was a teenager, though, before that, I would say that my influence was actually Oberon Zell Ravenheart and his book, The Grimoire, The Apprentice Wizard. Very good book. Yeah, I have heard of that book, but I have never read it. Um, yeah, you, you can tell it's neo-paganish. But, yeah. But he doesn't let it cloud the content mm -hmm. of it, though, which is good. Well, I mean, I got I got started with neo pagan uh, Wicca stuff back when I was in like junior high or something. So, mm -hmm. I I don't have any problem with neo paganism. In fact, I suspect I probably am something of a neo pagan. Um, so, just not Wiccan. <laughs> yeah. Um. So when you say you started with Crowley, are you saying so? Did you uh, did you find uh, material in, in Crowley or enough material in Crowley to get you? uh started off with with ritual and ceremony or what did you what did that really entail like what books did you pick up or what sort of lessons okay. did you get from him well uh i have to put this in context first like he was my second spiritual awakening you could say like the mm -hmm. first one happened when i was a teenager but i wasn't satisfied with a lot of that mm -hmm. with a lot of the neo pagan writings because they were so basic and i and i absorbed all the information so fast you know and and a lot of it is just simply repetitive. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they say the same stuff over and over and over, and I got bored. Right. And so when I went to Crowley, I wasn't just reading, oh, these are the four elements. This is how you cast your circle, you know? Mm -hmm. I got this totally different worldview. I'm like, Jesus, this guy's a genius. It was actually uh, the Book of the Law um, oh. that had a profound impact on me. Interesting. Yeah, it drew enough curiosity to where I started di di digging out my dictionary, to where I started trying to figure out what everything meant, and then I started diving deeper into his other works. Um, and that sort of kicked off my path, and it led to other things, too. Mm -hmm. So I, I started off with the ceremony and with the literature, uh, and then dived into the history. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then it led me down this rabbit hole to where I am now. Uh, where do you, where would you say you are now? I'm in more of magic based on antiquity. Yeah. Yeah, no. me too. Uh, that's funny. I sort of had a similar path, probably first with Kabbalah, where I studied Hermetic Kabbalah and found it to be very kind of, it's very shallow right? Like there's not, yeah. you know, once you, once you get past like the symbolism of the tree of life and some of the more basic concepts it has, like it doesn't have a, a really rich spiritual depth. So, uh, I then was like, I'm going to go read Jewish Kabbalah. And then I realized that Jewish Kabbalah, you know, well as incredibly rich tradition is almost useless. Um, at some point, unless you're going to study Torah with it or, you know, spend a lifetime decoding the Zohar or really get into some very, um, like, Jewish-centric religious stuff, which I wasn't completely interested in. So, uh, but that did totally open my eyes to how, um, how accessible a lot of the, a lot of the medieval works are. Like, there's a lot of great medieval stuff that, you know, grimoires and, um, and then Renaissance stuff like Agrippa and uh, and uh, Trithemius and things that, that are, you know, applicable and, and usable alongside like modern ceremonial magic. And I think uh, I just enjoy it more. It's more fun. 
Yeah, I think it's more creative. But like I said, when it comes to Jewish Kabbalah, mm-hmm. I actually I actually enjoy it, you know, because yeah. the Jewish tradition is so rich. Uh, like, for example, um, there was one guy who I was talking to a while back, and he said, well, Solomon, it, it, it all equates to the sun, Saul, oh, man. It's like, no, it, it, it actually, his name, it said, that, you're running off uh, a horrible westernized, bastardized name of Solomon. Yeah, it's so Shlomo. It's Shlomo. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, or for example, Shaloma. Mm-hmm. You know, Shaloma is, it means peace because David was a man of war. Mm-hmm. So and his son was meant to bring peace. So so they took Shaloma and it means peace. If you were to actually go to Sun Man, it would be Samson. Samson literally translates to Sun Man or Sun Child. Mm-hmm. You know, so see, see as much as I like Western stuff, that's where it gets diluted. Yeah, it gets diluted so fast. I mean, even some of Agrippa's stuff, as much as I love it, I think his methods are brilliant. It's a little bit diluted in comparison to the big picture of the eastern side of it but i do like it though yeah i guess uh, I, I would say that i honestly haven't used agrippa as much more than a reference book for quite a quite a while um when i first got my hands on it you know i read it pretty uh voraciously not sure i ever read the entire uh three books but but uh i don't uh, i haven't even i don't even know if i've cracked the book in a while well, there are some applicable methods, especially oh, for, for sure. astrology. Yeah. There, there's one that I used where you can find the name of any spirit at that time, date, and hour and stuff in Chapter 26 in Book 2. Oh, yeah? And Heck, I'm writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Book 2, Chapter 26. Book 2, 26. Right. All right, I can remember that. And uh, what you do is you make this big graph from, from Aries all the way to Pisces uh-huh. from the degrees from zero degree to 29 mm-hmm. because zero degree is also 30 yeah but but you do that all the way from Z, from pisces to aries and you can find the name of the spirit based on the sun the moon the ascendant and a previous new moon and a previous uh full moon is it similar to the uh shem hamefarash method do you uh, I don't think so. Okay. Does no, it use no. the, the, the deacons at all? Um, no, this is a little different because th- this just goes by the degrees. Okay. Yeah, I'll yeah, check like, that out. Yeah. yeah, one through... So you what you do on the less left of your chart is you put all 22 Hebrew letters. Mm-hmm. And then you, you start zero... Like for example, you have zero degree, mm-hmm. then it'll go end at twenty one in Aries in the first in the first column. You know? Then yeah. you go all the way over. And like I said, it's very I've used it, it's really powerful. Mm, I'll it, check that uh, out. Yeah, so theoretically speaking, you can find the name of the daimon of your birth if you know your chart. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder what it is. Maybe like Bob. yeah your angel's gonna come now say the almighty bob is here yeah that's (laughs) (laughs) i'll be very underwhelmed (laughs) but (laughs) well that's interesting so do you use a lot of uh 
do you use a lot of uh, Agrippa in your work now, or is it mostly... Oh, I always have. Yeah? And yeah. what sort of... What sort of magical work are you in? Are you in the middle of anything? Um, right now, my sole focus is on the Greek magical papyri mm-hmm. as a study and practice. I've been using a lot of it mm-hmm. as of late. I mean, to me, it, it is one of the most underrated magical grimoires and possibly the oldest in Western civilization that's around right now. Oh, yeah, I think we- it definitely is it seems to be getting a lot more attention lately i've been i've been noticing a lot of people talking about it um which is pretty neat uh and in fact trying to remember i think it was uh fowden's book the egyptian hermes um where he talks about um he talks about the the uh the the greek magical papyri as being um sort of a practical or or applicable side to um whatever hermetic practice actually existed you know, with the the hermeticists of the of the time the classical hermeticists well i think hermeticism is a part of it uh the pgm is a mixture of a lot of things there were mystery schools involved mm-hmm. there were um there was actual egyptian practices then you would find roman spells then you would find greek spells then you would find things like Babylonian um, uh, god names in there. And it even has its own angelic structure, yeah. too, hmm. the hours. I mean, it's sort of its own thing. I've only read a little bit of them. I, I have a... <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it's more of hermetism. Hermetism was, uh, is, is what it was back then. Yeah. Hermeticism came up, like, during the Renaissance. Right, right, and, right. I, I use the two terms kind of interchangeably. But, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Th- but that actually, that... Um... That terminology, the difference in terminology, I think, was also uh, started by Fowden in that book, where he split it Very into. Well. Yeah, Hermeticism, like I said, it, it came around with the mixture of alchemical symbols mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other stuff later. But in most Western practices from Nikia Solomon, it directly comes from the Greek magical papyri system. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, the 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 Michael triangle that the people use in, in the Solomonic practices in the PGM 2000 years ago. And during this system, they actually had a Hecate triangle. They would use to summon demons ah. and spirits. So Hecate, as she was a, one of the biggest deities around at that period. So the, the thing is people would always set an altar by their door mm-hmm. to, to tell her to keep evil spirits out of their home. And here's the thing: if she, uh, the ancients had this thought that if she has the power to keep them out, she has the power to bring them in. That so seems reasonable to me. Yeah. So magicians two thousand years ago thought if I put her in a triangle, I can have her summon demons mm-hmm. and also <clears throat> expel them too. So that's where we get the triangle at, and you can find one in the British Museum. Cool. Have you uh, have you used a Hecate triangle? Yeah, my good friend uh, Sam made one for me, and I love it. Cool. Um, I use, actually use a traditional oil lamp, mm-hmm. a Herodian age oil lamp from two thousand years ago replica. Yeah, and uh, I'll put oil in it. And uh, have you seen Pope Runyon's documentary on Nikia Solomon? Oh heck yeah! Who hasn't? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, here's the thing, though. It, it kind of cracks me up because when he made that documentary, he said, well, I couldn't figure out what was in that circle. And, you know, I was dumbfounded. How can you summon demons? Well, it's right there in the PGM. You put an oil lamp in the middle of that with the, and it provides its own light. Mm-hmm. And then you burn it. And as you're burning into it, it's a surreal experience. It's not like looking in a black mirror in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not like burning a candle. It just, it just feels and it looks totally different. So, actually, Crowley's bornless ritual is based on a deity that was primarily used in oil lamp scrying. Huh. Yeah. I... It was actually the headless, the headless one. Uh-huh. And it, it's this god with no head. It wasn't the bornless one, but the headless one. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, that's something I've really been meaning to look into more. I think I'm going to have to bump it up my list. Um, currently, uh, like I said, I've, I've been pretty engrossed in in grimoire stuff so that's kind of what i've been focusing on but when i do spirit uh summoning and scrying and stuff i actually have uh leds and things that i that i have programmed with an arduino Mm -hmm. um which is pretty fascinating i i have a for instance my my altar has a a real-time clock and some software that i wrote on it um that lights it up according to the current planetary uh, day and hour, which it oh, calculates wow. automatically, which is pretty fun. Um, I can just do it any time of the day. It's it's gesture activated, so I activate it by waving my hand over it, and it lights up. <laughs> and, Did you uh, make it? Did you purchase it? I made it. I made it. Um, it's mostly held together with duct tape, but uh, it's a really awesome prototype. And then... Um, and then I made mostly because I was having trouble finding a uh, just because of my limited space or the way my space is, is set up. When I first started working with um, summoning spirits into crystals, actually we we talked about it when we were talking about it uh, a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. And I and I uh, hacked up Trithemius's prayers and sent them to you. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I sort of went through Trithemius's stuff, and I just sort of. Uh, rewrote all of it and um, and I was like you know I'm going to use this I'm going to figure out how to use this and I had purchased a crystal ball or gotten a crystal ball um, a couple months ago and hadn't put it to use it had just been sitting in its box so I set it up and I couldn't find any good way to place candles around it or I was out of candles or something like that happened and I was like you know I'm just gonna I'm gonna program a fake candle so I did I programmed a fake candle and it works great (laughs) Wow. It's uh yeah, I've I've the more I the more I do it, you know, at first I was kind of like this is so dorky, but then I realized all I'm doing is adapting the tools I have to the stuff I'm trying to do and it and uh it's been very effective. So, oh yeah. Yeah. And that's a part of magic is using the tools that are around you. Mhm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've, I've been really fascinated with the concept of, uh, using more like programmable electronics and microcircuitry in ritual tools or ritual devices. I, uh, uh, I've also been, you know, uh, experimenting with using like binaural beats and isochronic tones, um, during meditation and trance work. Mm-hmm. And that's been really fascinating. Um, 
and effective. I honestly, you know, I've been reading about it a little bit, and I don't know that there's anything out there that states that binaural beats are actually effective, but they do provide a sort of, you know, droning background noise that blocks out the rest of the world. Uh, and I, found, I can imagine. Yeah, and I found that to be really effective, too. So uh, it's been really fun to experiment with using technology with old grimoire techniques. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep doing it, man. Uh, I think it's useful. I've been I've been getting into something similar um, based on a Pythagorean theory with sound. Mm-hmm. Um, he called it the music of the spheres. Yeah. In the Pythagorean book and library. Do you have that book? Um, no, but I'm familiar with the concept. And I actually, uh, a friend of mine who's a who's a magician and a um, music major, actually, he's getting his doctorate in music or music theory or music studies or whatever you get a doctorate in when you're doing music stuff. He had this, he, he, I, he gave this great presentation once about um, planetary music, like all of these different planetary scales or, or I guess they called them modes, all these different musical modes that were based on the planets. And he based, and he, he could just sort of put together music in any of them. He'd say like, call out a planet. And somebody would call out a planet and he'd start playing. And it, and because of the way that the notes are set up and the intervals and things, mm-hmm. it, it sounded like that planet. Like it totally, you know, like he could just jam with, on Mars and it would sound like war music or he could just wow. play a Saturn tune and it was like heavy and melancholy. And he said, I think that it was based on uh, some of the stuff that Pythagoras originally mm-hmm. set up. Um yeah. And then yeah. it was adapted by the church. So up until, I think, the up until like the Counter-Reformation in the late 16th century, the church was using planetary modes in their sacred music. Oh, yeah. And you can find us in the Tetractus, too. Mm-hmm. The Tetractus, for example, the top part is just a singular note. You divide that note in half, and then you get like two other notes, which are two points. Yeah. The monad, dyad, triad, and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's funny because um, I was talking with a modern hermeticist, and he took a, a really cool approach to this too, Danny Trail. And um, scientists have actually got found out the planets have their own vibration too. Yeah. That, yeah. That's different. Um, and I've been listening to each of those vibrations. And just meditating on those vibrations with the uh, concept, you know, that Westerners like us put on it. You know, Mars is for war, mm-hmm. you know, companionship, love for Venus, you know, that solar energy, our inner core being the sun and just listening to those. And it and it was really intriguing, actually. Hmm. That sounds and, pretty fascinating. Uh, do, did you find uh, like music files that were that had the vibrations in them or did you generate it yourself or how did you do that uh i found them on youtube oh oh i'll have to look that up yeah maybe you could send me yeah, some links i mean personally i think that uh you know Pythag- yeah i don't think pythagoras actually you know came out with music of the spheres i think it was iamblichus mm-hmm. who wrote about it because back then they had, they had this tradition of 
you know, giving giving what knowledge they that they've learned, accrediting the teacher for it back in the day. Mm-hmm. So it's even believed that uh, Pythagoras wrote some of the Orphic hymns, and Orpheus actually wrote them too. So, huh? That's kind of interesting. Uh, when it comes to antiquity and stuff, I mean, uh, it was in the sixth Orphic hymn to the heavens. It talks about the sun uh, going around the earth, which is round. I'm not even kidding you. It mentions that the earth is round in the sixth Orphic hymn. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've known that the earth is round for a super long time. This was uh, back during the sixth century uh, mm-hmm. BCE when they knew this. It, it, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it turns out that it's it, there's, you know, dozens of ways to, to prove it and show it. And um, which, so they had some smart mathematicians. Oh, they were. And this is out of all the things, this was in a mystery school, the, uh, the, you know, possibly one of the oldest uh, mystery schools in Greece that we know of, you know, uh, the Orphic Mysteries. I've been leaning, uh, wanting to learn more about it and leaning in that direction. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten a chance to do it yet, but uh, there seems to be a lot of good knowledge there, and it's easy to see where Pythagoras could easily be inspired from it, such as um, with reincarnation mm-hmm. and having love for music and math. I mean, I could see it. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty fascinating area for discovery. I wish that I had some things to, to aim you at to, to, to throw your way, but... Uh, I'm sure if you go looking, there's a lot available. And I know there's also a, a pretty, um, I don't know how big it is, but there's a there's a pretty good group of uh, like Hellenic uh, religious revivalists out there who have been collecting a lot of stuff and trying to rebuild some of the older rituals and stuff. That, that... Well, honestly, I try to avoid those groups. <laughs> yeah, I have a, a friend who... A lot of them are very militant. And a lot of them are have a lot of infighting. I have some. I have a a friend who's been involved in a few of them, and and all she ever really does is complain about how much infighting and um, uh, yeah miscom- discomfort and stuff she finds. So I mean, I can say say this about the Orphic Hymns. There are a lot of good books on it. Yeah, uh, but I can only name a handful of good ones. That I haven't been able to get my hands on, but. Uh, from the reviews I read, they're, they're really, really good, really accurate. Mm-hmm. And the problem with the Orphic hymns and the Orphic mysteries is that they're very fragmented, very right. fragmented. So we don't really have a clear idea of a lot of stuff that they've done. So yeah, I mean that's a problem with a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the classical um, religious stuff, especially when it's more of the magical or mystery school t- type variety. Um, I mean, even, you know, even with hermetism, for instance, we don't have any complete initiatory rites for them. We just sort of have hints and clues like, you know, uh, Book 13 or the Ogdoad revealing the Ennead in the in the Nagamati mm-hmm. Gospels. Like we we don't really know what they did or how they did it, um, which is frustrating when you're reading it because you're sort of like, I think it's in Book 13 where... Uh, Hermes is telling Tat, like, oh, you, you're approaching the seventh sphere, but you're not ready for the eighth yet. And then mm-hmm. in the Nag Hammadi Gospels, 
it's all like, oh, look, you're right there at the at the eighth sphere. You're entering into it and passing through it into the ninth. And then it's got all these like long chants and barbarous names and like weird stuff that that Tat just spontaneously starts spouting off. And then it's like, and then it ends in a hymn or a prayer or something. It's like, that's it. We got it. Good job. And as a reader, you're kind of like, this is not, this is not an expose. <laughs> this is not. Yeah, well, I can, I can see where they're coming from though. When mm-hmm. you're into PGM, it's very similar. Yeah. Um, because, because they have a totally different view. Um, I think it's in book 10. I just posted up. But it says, God, the workman, did not create the world by his hands, but by words. Right. Here recently, um, words carried so much power. Uh, you know, we, people back then had so much more respect for words and magic mm-hmm. than what they do now. For us, we take them for granted. You know, we read some ancient texts. Well, this is boring, long, barbarous words. Right. But magicians back then, to be able to read it and speak it, and it goes even beyond spirituality. Once the Phoenicians, once they created the first global trade, the Greeks and the and the Hebrews, they're like, oh, wow. How, how did they do this? Oh, we it's their alphabet. They can teach us their alphabet. That's why we have Aleph. That's why we have Alpha. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You know, because they took from the Phoenicians. And, it, and the Phoenicians, not only did they establish trade, they built trading posts. They extended beyond the pillars of Hercules into South Africa, mm-hmm. all the way out to England, you know, and they saw. And so this was people's Amazon back then, <laughs> you know, this was their Amazon.com. <laughs> there was no, you know? there was no Phoenician prime though. Like they couldn't guarantee uh, two day yeah. delivery. Have you read, uh, there, there's a, there's an example of this. And this co- comes from one of the ancient playwrights. Um, I, I want to say uh, this comes from an ancient playwright in greece sophocles i think it is but it has to do but but it has to do with achilles and his mother so this was obviously a side story of the iliad uh, of the iliad right and and achilles mother tried to prevent him from going to troy and everybody knew this was coming so she sent him off on this island and 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 told him to, to dress like a girl so nobody would know that um uh, so nobody would know it, it was him mm-hmm. well odysseus figured out where he went so and do you know what he did to find out who achilles really was and this is the whole point like how the phoenicians started up this entire trade thing um because they didn't have amazon once yeah. again <laughs> so what they did was he dressed up as a tradesman, as a trader on a ship, uh-huh. and he brought in all these gifts, and all these females started running while Achilles was like, uh, you know, <laughs> while they ran and you know to get the fur, and while they ran to get all this golden stuff and stuff from different countries, they loved it. So people would anticipate these traders, right? And, and this play is a direct reflection of of that too. I'll, so. Words created trade. Words created culture. Words created a, a systematic format for society. Oh yeah. So, sure. so Thoth was seen. Thoth, the god of words, was seen as the god of magic and wisdom. Mm-hmm. So when we look at um, Hermes, the god of words, or the messenger, or an Angelos, you know, in in, in Greek, 
he was the god of, of magic because he mastered words. We see the same thing with Odin. Words were so powerful that uh, this is a big reason. Even Christ came out and said, I am the Logos. I am Logos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and, it's, in the, it's in the Corpus Hermeticum more than once. Yeah, this in is the, what I mean. In the hymn We've, to... Uh, or in uh, her in uh, Hermes' prayer at the end of uh, mm-hmm. Poimandris, he says something about "Holy is God, who by the Word has united all that is." Exactly, Word is so powerful. Even mm-hmm. even today in magic, now see although what you described, yeah, it seemed a little low monotonous for today, but but when we actually say these things out loud, mm-hmm. when we think about how words back then could be could determine whether there's going to be conflict or peace mm-hmm. whether it could determine you know oh a phoenician could say i'm not going to bring you pretty shit anymore you treated us like shit you know yeah it goes a little and it goes even deeper than that you know um words were the way that souls communicated you know a soul would yeah. animate to the body transform the the forms or ideals that the soul had access to into words which would travel into another body and undergo a reverse transformation into the into the soul yeah. back into forms and ideals it, and it was it was the most magical and in fact but that came a little bit later though that came a little bit later after the practical purpose of them you know what i mean well i mean it because was, mystic yeah i mean it was in, in the time um esotericism didn't come around uh be right right around 1000 bce that's when esotericism started to come around yeah um so before that everything was more literal in most cultures around the world Mm -hmm. once esotericism come around it's kind of like with us you know how back then people they didn't have as much for middle class uh, families and poor families but now we have everything that they would want so we have a so for example imagine what they would how they would see a computer nowadays they'd be like holy hell mm-hmm. this is the best comparison i can think of so we take things for granted because we have so much you know such as in their case um it was the same concept that they had all this esoteric knowledge already exoteric i should say at the time they had all this religious and mystical knowledge already there, and they knew it so well that they had a chance to process it and make it evolve into esotericism. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so that does make sense. Groundwork. Yeah. But I, I, I love stuff like this, especially the power of word. It's always one thing that I em- uh, put emphasis on. Yeah. Word and memory. I think, and you, um, I think that's a good thing to pay attention to. I think... Um, there's a lot there to explore for sure. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, honestly, in the Bible, a lot of people a lot of people don't realize this. It's kind of funny because people ask, how can God create night and day without a sun or a moon in, in the first <laughs> couple of verses? Well, it's a mistranslation. Because in the actual translation, it says uh that that there was chaos, then there was discernment. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't actually night and day. So it actually, it's almost parallel to this uh, Sumerian story of creation with chaos and discernment. Do you know about, what is it, Tohu Wabohu? Mm -mm. It's, um, I think it's from 
uh, what is it like in the beginning? Oh, without form and void is how it's translated in the uh, in the King James version. But it's uh, mm-hmm. I don't I it's one of those um, phrases where we don't have a very good translation for, so it gets um, played with a lot or or analyzed. It easily a lot. gets convoluted. What's I understand. That? Say that again. It easily gets convoluted. Yeah, uh, it's definitely yeah. I I actually just hurt just learned about it from a kabbalist friend of mine and i haven't really looked into it a whole lot but i uh i picked up the the sefer haba here the other day mm-hmm. and um i'm not sure if i ever read that all the way through uh my bookmark was right in the middle of the book i've had the books and you know for like 15 years so i opened it up and started reading from the beginning and right at the beginning of the ba here it starts talking about the without form and void idea the tohu wabohu mm-hmm. and i was like oh here we go look at this uh, then i um then i fell asleep so i didn't get more than like one well, that would make sense in. though because <laughs> you can you know without form, form or void that was a big thing yeah back then especially with people uh in a babylonian sumerian and jewish culture and along the aegean mm-hmm. you know that was a very and even the mediterranean that was a big thing well, um, their, their lives were were run by the sea Mm-hmm. And the concept of the of the formless or amorphous sea, uh, mm-hmm. and terrifying sea was you know I mean of course that's that's what they would look for for things like that you know the god Proteus is a good example. Um, he's mm-hmm. the, uh, one of the one of the uh, my understanding is that early on like he was a very early important Greek sea god who was seen as a god without shape or form who was terrifying mm-hmm. and lived in this in the void of the ocean and could and was a shapeshifter could take any form um a uh, yeah so uh, yeah i think there's a lot to contemplate there i've only started really looking at it which is why i'm it a little of, deeper than that too because, yeah uh, it, it's reflected in a spell to hecate for any prayer oh really because the, the night was almost like the chaos or nits mm-hmm. you know chaos and when we look at it, we, we're, we're, there is a rough dichotomy of antiquity of, of two kinds of magic, lunar magic and solar magic. Mm. Well, now there's a there's a dichotomy here. Uh, if, if you look at Hecate, the goddess of the moon, Selene, and everything in it here in antiquity, wh- which describes it, Hecate is a train. Hey, that's okay. I've got yeah, but, I've got like construction hey, and rainstorms. <laughs> but um, Hecate was seen. If you go through her original imagery, she has the voice of dogs, the voice of a bull. Uh-huh. She's bull-eyed. She has serpent chains on her back. She is this horrific monster. And this horrific monster woman can invoke and evoke demons alike. So the night was seen as this more horrific thing. This wasn't just psychological. When when someone said don't go out at night, they meant it, you know, because they thought there were creatures out there, you know? And I mean, let alone, I mean, granted, it's already evil enough when we go out there in this modern world, right? Right. <laughs> and there's some evil bastards out there. Imagine what it was like 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, walking around in the middle of the night. If you think people are bad now, I mean, yeah, not not just it would have been dangerous and very yeah. dark. Yeah. So yes. even 
even in Europe, uh, all the way up in Europe to, uh, you know, 1300 years ago, the night was, was still feared with monsters and entities. We see this in uh, Christian writings in the Dark Ages, the same concept as they had in the night, you know, to their peers 2000 years prior, mm -hmm. you know, while the day was, it was another concept. The night represented the unknown. That's what made it scary. But the day represented the known, which is why Pythagoras and um, Socrates and all these, and even kings uh, and pharaohs, they represented enlightenment. They represented a form of knowledge and, and revealing something from the darkness into the light. Mm -hmm. And that this was where the great di dichotomy begins. If we go through a prayer to, uh, to establish a relationship with Helios, this is where it gets really interesting because and and i read this i couldn't believe it because knowledge of you deified us huh. that was a direct quote from a 2000 year old prayer because knowledge of you deified us you hmm. gave us knowledge for such you gave us life for such and 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 it showed everything that the, that the sun represented all right there in that one prayer to Helios. And so you have this dichotomy, the benevolent father and the scary mother, much like you have the Binah, and then you have Chokhmah. Yeah. Although Kabbalah wasn't around back then, there's an obvious dichotomy there. Well, those, And the magician worked with... Yeah, I mean, those ideas, you know, the concept of, like, the mother and father having different attributes is something that you know probably rippled through that part of the world for ages and ended up somehow embedded in like the sefer yetzirah mm -hmm. and um <clears throat> and early jewish mysticism and eventually oh yeah it, it's been around well before it yeah that's how we describe the uh um pgm the papyri Graeci magakai mm -hmm. is it's everything that's been around for thousands of years that finally reached a surface for everybody right to go through. it wasn't any longer a mystery you know um and everybody went to alexandria to spread their mystery school even the earliest pottery that we had uh, you know dimensions christ is is this bowl or this cup and it says christ the magician <laughs> It's found off the coast of Alexandria. Nice. Well, hey, um, I feel like we should uh, maybe wrap up recording. Do you? Would you like to plug your website or your podcast or things like that? Yeah, just stop by www.vayutiger.com. All right. And you've got links to Shadows in the Dark and all that sort of stuff on there. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's actually one of my tabs. Great. Well, this has been really fun. I'm glad that we uh, that we scheduled this, and I think we should do it again. Yeah, I'm I'm more than open for it. Just uh, drop me a date, and I'll tell you yay or nay. All right, sounds cool. Thank you for listening to My Alchemical Bromance. You can find us on the web at myalchemicalbromance.com, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Podcast Addict or anything of that nature. Tune in next time, and that's it. Bye.